Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us again this morning for another episode of Strength to Strength. Our goal here at Strength to Strength is to offer resources that will help strengthen your love-faith relationship with Jesus Christ and give you a solid footing in a shaky world. And part of that, as some of you know, um, we do have a bookstore at strengththestrength.org, and we're offering new titles there all the time. And our latest um, would be an author interview that we did with Gary Miller on the book Sidetrack, which is how power in politics distract in distract us from our mission. I found this book extremely helpful um, in refocusing or uh, removing any doubt in my mind about where our loyalties lie and what the effective means of bringing about change in the world is. And that is in the kingdom of God. Um, so if you're interested in any of the titles that we have, uh, go over to strengththestrength.org. We're putting new ones up there all the time. Also, um, if you're a call-in listener, you can email us at contact at strengththestrength.org. And we'll send you a flyer with all our books. And we can also provide you a flyer with all the, our recorded talks that we have here on uh, Strength to Strength. And it's just another means of providing um, resources that will help you in your walk with Christ. Um, so this morning we have Brother John D. sharing with us on the kingdom of God. And this is the first talk of a four-part series. Um, we will have a talk this afternoon at three o'clock. Uh, Brother Paul Garber will actually be bringing that. And the series is called Thy Kingdom Come. We're launching into a new year, and I don't think there's any other worthy topic but to talk about our King Jesus Christ and his kingdom to get this year started. Um, we're excited to have Brother John D. join us again with uh a message that I know that he's very passionate about, and I'm sure many of you have heard him speak on the kingdom of God before, and I'm excited to hear what he has to say for us this morning. But before we get started, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Eternal Father in heaven, we come to you this morning with joy and gratitude yes. that you have reached down in love and shown us your will through your written word and through the life of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Father, we are so grateful for salvation. We are so grateful for the way that we can enter into your kingdom and that we can live in peace and harmony with you and with one another. Father, we want to do this more perfectly every day so that the world can know that you love them and that you've sent your only begotten son to redeem them and that we as humans, we can know you and love you and live in harmony with you. Be with Brother John as he shares this message this morning. Lord, I pray that he would have an anointing and that the Holy Spirit would um, move his heart and mind to share this message that is so impactful. And Lord, fill us with zeal to bring your kingdom in the communities that we live and then work alongside the Holy Spirit in showing people that there's a better way, that there is a way that we were created to live. Yes. Father, I just pray for each soul that is listening. May their hearts be 
Um, may their hearts rejoice at the message of the kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead, Brother John. Well, good morning. Uh, the title of the message is God's Kingdom Vision for the World. Uh, and it's interesting, when I was preparing this message uh, to give at Cam Day uh, a few months ago, uh, somebody reacted to an article that was published, uh, uh, an article of mine on the kingdom. And uh, they really reacted to my statement that our personal salvation is a means to the end, and the end is the kingdom of God. And uh, we should not make our personal salvation an end in itself. I still stand by that statement, but that really troubled them because they felt uh, that there should be uh, a primary emphasis on uh, our own personal salvation and holiness. And they felt that my message would uh, uh, cause people to veer into what they knew as the social gospel. And so that really piqued my interest in finally researching what is the social gospel that people talk about? What was it? Uh, so I want to speak this morning uh, about the difference between the, the social gospel movement and the kingdom of God as Jesus taught it. Uh, now, Jesus always called his message the kingdom of God. I don't think he ever called it anything else. And so, like I said, I will stand by my insistence that that is finally the result of our personal salvation. Uh, <clears throat> So I, I want to give three points this morning. Number one is two-kingdom confusion, and then we'll talk about a two-kingdom clarification, and then we'll finally talk about uh, two-kingdom cautions. Now, uh, the two-kingdom confusion is because Jesus made a statement that involves two aspects. He said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, and thy neighbor is thyself. Uh, there has been a tendency to create a polarization. Uh, there have been people that said, we really should not be focusing on the practical needs of the world because uh, those people, we maybe can help them live a few more years, but they're gonna go to hell if we don't get them saved. And so we're not really gonna spend much time helping people with their physical problems. We wanna make sure that they're ready to go to heaven. And so uh, we're just gonna focus on that pretty exclusively. And, and that's not an exaggeration, I actually, attended a, a, a conference in uh, Belgium when I was in Europe back in 1967. And uh, the, I won't name the institution. Uh, it would be one familiar probably to some of you. Uh, and they had an evening message on that very point. They said, we don't have any clinics. We don't have any practical help that we give to anybody. We don't feed the hungry. We don't do any of those things. We are out there just passionately trying to get people ready to go to heaven when they die. That's that's really what we need to focus on. And so before the Civil War, that was a, a pretty common emphasis. Uh, people were not really so much concerned about the poor and the needy around them as they should have been. I mean, they're obviously, all, the true Christians have always uh, been interested in humanitarian issues. But before the Civil War, uh, the, the emphasis of most churches was on loving God almost to the exclusion of the second half of Jesus' statement. Uh, per they were focused on personal salvation, getting people ready to go to heaven. And so after the Civil War then, we had the industrialization of society. And then people began to see some real problems. You had unprecedented prosperity. You had massive wealth to investors. 
like John D. Rockefeller and, and Andrew Carnegie. Uh, they were known as the robber barons. And the reason they were known for that is because of the way people got treated. Uh, you had uh, Vanderbilt, you had these uh, very, very wealthy people, and you had people working in factories that were practically slaves. In fact, during the Civil War, that was the accusation of the South. They said, well, you're, you're blaming us for having slaves, but uh, you buy our cotton and you want to buy it cheap. So we have to have slaves to give you the cheap cotton you want. And then you have factories where the people actually are treated worse than we treat our slaves. Uh, your employees are, in, are working in dangerous conditions, uh, unregulated work hours. And uh, many churches were, were pretty detached from the suffering that was involved. And uh, so if you talk to them, they would uh, give you this justification. They would say, well, Jesus said, the poor you always have with you. Uh, and so that's just the way society is. But there were some sensitive, compassionate Christians that insisted that along with Jesus' message on the kingdom was a tremendous ministry to the suffering and the needs of humanity. And uh, so they started to focus on that, that Jesus' ministry to the suffering, the sick, the disabled, and the poor. Uh, they saw clear commands in Scripture that said that our emphasis should finally rest there. And they would have quoted Scriptures like this one from Isaiah 58. Is not this the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, that you break every yoke? Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house, when thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh? Uh, that's, that's pretty strong language. And so uh, they, the emphasis began to shift. And these people, they, they were well-meaning people. They were Christians, so-called at least, and uh, they wanted to obey this command of Christ. And so they worked hard uh, with political means and other uh, means of uh, influence and pressure to abolish child labor, to abolish alcoholism, to challenge corrupt politics and business practices, to challenge racism, extreme poverty, uh, establish a uh, an eight-hour workday, good education and health care for everybody. These were good, th and they really did accomplish a lot of things. In fact, we benefit today tremendously from the changes in the areas which I just mentioned because of these people. These were genuine Christians who were trying to make as many positive changes in society, and we enjoy those changes to this day. Uh, it was an inspiring vision that they had. They had a vision of turning all of society into Christ's kingdom on earth. And that's what I did not realize is when you use the term kingdom of God, that was, their, that was the term they constantly used. And so when you use the term kingdom of God, you're going to cause a red flag to a lot of people who know about the social gospel movement because that was their mantra. They wanted to, establish, they wanted to see Christ's kingdom come on earth. And we, we sing this song. <laughs> we have a story to tell to the nations. And Christ's great kingdom shall come on earth, the kingdom of truth and right. That was a social gospel song. Now, the interesting thing is we had those songs in our hymnals. Oh, Master, let me walk with thee. That's a, that's a, a, a social gospel song. In fact, I want to read it to you. It doesn't say anything about people uh, uh, getting ready uh, to uh, meet God. Uh, it, it's all about influencing people to, to live better and being kind to people. Uh, where is this here? Oh, last, Master, let me walk with thee in lowly paths of service free. Tell me thy secret. Help me bear the strain of toil, the fret of care. 
help me the slow of heart to move by some clear winning word of love. It was all about uh, being a positive influence. I mean, you don't talk about sin. You don't talk about the devil. You don't talk about hell. You don't talk about people getting saved and going to heaven when they die. It, you, you, you're trying to uh, uh, just be a positive influence in society. Help me the slow of heart to move by some clear winning word of love. Teach me the wayward feet to stay and guide them in the homeward way. Teach me thy patience still with thee in closer, dearer company. In work that keeps faith sweet and strong, in trust that triumphs over wrong. In hope that sends a shining ray far down the future's broadening way. In peace that only thou canst give with me, O Master. With thee, O Master, let me live. That's Washington Gladden, who was a prominent leader in the social gospel movement. And I'll talk a little bit more about why those songs are in our hymn or why, why we sing them if, if they were part of this movement that uh, people sing, say we should be very careful about. So anyway, <laughs> this was an inspiring vision and people got caught up in it. Uh, they built settlement houses right in the middle of the slums where uh, middle-class people worked right along with people who were poor and tried to teach them skills and tried to help lift them from their poverty. But there was a tragic sh shift of emphasis Finally, the emphasis was on love thy neighbors thyself, and it tended to replace uh, the cultivation of a real relationship with God, dealing with the sin issue, dealing with the uh, heart issues uh, of, uh, that, that really need to be dealt with. And so uh, these people were involved in political action. Uh, they confused the two kingdoms, and I wanted, that'll be in my talk about the kingdom clarification. The focus was on salvation of society, rather than on salvation of individuals. Uh, they did not see sin as a personal problem. They saw sin as a societal problem. People were sinful because of the uh, awful corruption of our society that drove them into poverty, that drove them into alcoholism, that drove them into the uh, things that we would have said were, were personal issues. Uh, they, were, they said calling people sinners was offensive. That's not encouraging. You don't do that. Uh, people needed encouragement, not condemnation. Societies are sinful. That's why individuals are sinful. The sin nature was, de was denied. People were seen as being basically good. And if we could just cultivate the good, uh, the light that lights every man in the world, if we could just fan that into flame, uh, that would be the solution to the problems. Christ's sacrifice for sin became peripheral, if indeed it was even preached at all. The inspiration of the scripture was weakened. People tended to take the verses that promoted uh, what I'm just talking about to the neglect of other verses. Uh, so uh, they did not really uh, take the entire scripture as serious as they should have taken. They confused the heart of the gospel. Jesus was seen as a good example. How many of you read in his steps? Probably most of you. That's a social gospel book. In fact, the part that troubled all of us when we read it is that the Andes people that we were so inspired by got involved in political action toward the end of the book. Well, it's because that was that was written by a, a social gospel person. And <laughs> it's interesting because that book can have a tremendous challenge to people like us. But it did come out of this movement, and it does lack those things. And I told you that that, that uh, gospel lacked. Jesus is seen as a good example. Uh, of course, the, the mantra, what would Jesus do? Uh, somebody has observed, uh, before you answer that question, you probably should study what did Jesus do uh, to, to understand uh, how to relate uh, to, to the needs of people. They figured if we could change society, it would lift the, the uh, character of everybody. It was social Darwinism. Uh, at the same time, 
You had Darwin uh, talking about biological uh, evolution. This was social evolution. And uh, post-millennialism was, was a big thing at that time. And, and, and they saw reason for it. I mean, our missionaries were going to Africa. They were going to India. Uh, whole countries were being influenced. Uh, you take the Brethren of Christ went to Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe. If you go to Zimbabwe today and you ask people who what their religion is, they will say uh, they are either heathen, uh, uh, animus, or brethren in Christ. I mean, the, the brethren in Christ had such an influence on that country, it became the alternative to heathenism in Zimbabwe. So I'm just trying to tell you that the churches were having that kind of influence on uh, places like India, Africa, and China. And so people saw this happening. They said, uh, if we just get out there, we have a story to tell to the nations and Christ's great kingdom shall come on earth and uh, we'll have a wonderful uh, society. It was offensive to these people to sing Onward Christian Soldiers. That song predated uh, the Civil War. And it goes like this. Onward Christian Soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus. Oh my, you don't talk about that going on before Christ the royal master leads against the foe forward into battle see his banner go at the sign of tri triumph Satan's host must flee oh my that's negative talk onward then Christian soldiers on to victory hell's foundations quiver oh my that's a subject you shouldn't be addressing at the shout of praise brothers lift your voices loud your anthems raise onward Christian soldiers marching us to war with the cross of Jesus going on before that was language they did not like and so there was another song written that they did like. How many, probably most of you, I have sung the song Forward Through the Ages. Now, I did not put that song in my book. Uh, I was not aware of everything I'm telling you at that time, but that song always troubled me a little bit because they, they took out the part that's in Honored Christian Soldiers. And I want you to listen to this. There's nothing of those offensive subjects in this song. Forward Through the Ages in Unbroken Line, Move the faithful spirits at the call divine. Gifts in differing measure, hearts of one accord, manifold the service, one the sure reward. Wider grows the kingdom, reign of love and light. For it we must labor till our faith is sight. Prophets have proclaimed it, martyrs testified. Poets sang its glory, heroes for it died. Forward through the ages in unbroken line, move the faithful spirits at the call divine. <laughs> so there's no cross, there's no sin, there's no Satan, there's no hell. There's, I mean, there's just none of that in this song. It's all a positive song uh, that we're marching, uh, uh, improving humanity. Uh, <clears throat> this song actually became the marching hymn of the social gospel movement. Most people who sing it do not know that. And we have these songs in our hymnal. I quoted one of them to you. Another one is Where Cross the Crowded Ways of Life. And one in my hymnal that I really like is O Holy City Scene of John. But you'll see none of those subjects they did not like in those songs. They all express the optimism of the evolving perfection of humanity. Now, why are they, why do we sing them? Well, I think it's appropriate for us to sing them because we have them in our hymnals along with the other hymns. And so they're in a context uh, where that other uh, aspect of the gospel is uh, expressed in other hymns that we sing. Uh, but I just wanted you to know, when you sing those songs, you're singing social gospel songs. And if you sing them along with the other hymns we have in our hymnal, they can be appropriate because Christians do involve themselves in the needs of humanity. Well, the optimism of the social gospel movement ended with World War I. 
And the 20th century became the bloodiest century in the history of the world. It was a tremendous wake-up call to realism that there was something wrong with man. He could not be improved just by improving society and improving the conditions of, of humanity. But the social gospel still lives on in liberal Protestantism. The civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s and, and the cause was a good cause. We're not saying there's anything wrong with the concerns that these people had. The Great Society of Presbyterian Lyndon B. Johnson, that was, that was social gospel. He, he would have said he was a Christian, but this was his concept of what Christians should be doing. Globalism, the attempt to apply Christian morals to all of our foreign relations, just treat our enemies a little bit better and, and, and they'll be better people. And, and, uh, you know, if we just treat Iran a little bit better, they'll quit do, they, they will never uh, misuse the atomic weapons they're developing. Uh, this is social gospel. It's it's way out there and in, in, <laughs> in the left. I'm not sure many of those people are even thinking about religion at this point. But this is this was the thinking. In fact, if you want to understand how the liberals think in our world, this is what they're doing. If we if man is not sinful, it's just we have to improve conditions. We have to improve relationships. We have to encourage people. We have to do good to people. Well, these are themes that we also talk about when we talk about the gospel. But it's it's the one side of the gospel. It's not the other side. And so, so now we need a two-kingdom clarification. First of all, the gospel is not about imitating Christ. I have pretty well banished that term from my vocabulary. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is not just looking at Jesus as a good example and just trying to do what he did. The gospel is a transformation from the inside. In fact, if you go through the epistles, it's interesting to me, all of the prepositional phrases you have. You have in Christ, to Christ, for Christ, unto Christ. It's, it's this whole idea, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Christ's death was more than just a good example. It was a sacrifice to atone for our sins, to deal with the malignancy at the heart of every human being. And uh, that's what they misunderstand. They misunderstand uh, that sin is, our, is the real problem. In fact, selfishness, I think is the other word, is the synonym for sin. You know, on the billboard line, they often ask me to define sin, and I have already defined it theologically, and then we get into a big debate. But if I say that sin is selfishness, nobody ever argues with me. We all know that's what it is, and we all know that we everybody has it, and we all know that it's the thing that messes up all human relationships and all societies. So <laughs> Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world. He rejected political power. He never tried to change the culture. For instance, he never addressed the issue of slavery. And I hear that all the time. Why didn't Jesus abolish slavery? Why didn't he address that issue? Well, he knew the world would be changed one person at a time. He knew you didn't change things that way. And Christianity did bring the abolishment of slavery. Of course, we had perversions of Christianity that brought it back again in this country. Uh, one of the blackest marks on our history promoted from the pulpit. Uh, but true Christianity basically uh, brought an end to slavery. Uh, you have the Quakers, for instance. And there were a few slaves among the Quakers. They were household slaves. They were treated well. They were treated part of the family. 
but it was still slavery. And you had people like John Woolman that preached against it and basically banished slavery from the Quakers. And so true Christians have always lifted up a voice against that institution, but they didn't get involved in politics. They didn't get involved in marches. They didn't try to pressure society with coercion. Jesus warned that the world would oppose the gospel. The world was not gonna be friendly to the gospel. There are two kingdoms. The kingdoms of this world are supposed to deal with uh, evil, with the use of force and coercion. That's what the kingdom of this world is supposed to do. And I tell people, the reason we don't get involved is because we are called to give a demonstration of what society is supposed to be like, where there is no coercion, where people out of the goodness and, and uh, uh, grace in their hearts do these things that you social gospel people are trying to pressure people to do. And so if we get involved in the coercion and the pressure that the world uses and is supposed to use, we don't give the picture of the society God wants us to give. And so that's why we do not get involved. Jesus knew uh, that there would be tremendous opposition against the gospel. Read Matthew 10. I mean, that is just a battle call uh, to, to a war that's going to exist between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. Jesus said that evil will exist side by side with the righteous in this world until his second coming. We have the parable of the terrors that would grow together. He knew that the absolute kingdom of God would not evolve. I want to stop there for just a minute. My premillennial friends, when they heard me uh, emphasize this, uh, did not like the emphasis because they believe the kingdom is coming in the future. Well, what I did not understand is they were hearing in my message the absolute kingdom of God, where everything would be perfect. We are not experiencing that kingdom now. We're experiencing a mediatorial kingdom where we are mediating the graces of that absolute kingdom in an imperfect world, in an imperfect way, but it's still an expression of that kingdom in a genuine, credible form, but it's not perfect. We are not, in, we are not living in the absolute kingdom of God. And I think we need to clarify that uh, because I think that's the reason most people react because they think that's what we're talking about. Uh, the absolute kingdom where everything is finally set right at the end. And so uh, people would react to me, they would say, that's coming in the future. Uh, the church is the church and the kingdom of God is the kingdom of God. Those two are not the same. Uh, well, if we need to clarify. We're not talking about the absolute kingdom of God. He said that would be ushered in as his second coming. In fact, he clarified it with this. Let me read. He spake a parable because he was not to Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. This is Luke 9, 11 to 13. So there were people that thought, the absolute kingdom was going to come right now. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his 10 servants and delivered them 10 pounds and said unto them, occupy until I come. That's where we are. And it says, after a long time, he returned. It just struck me recently. He told us that it would be a long time before he would return. Uh, I think we should all be expecting his return, but uh, I think if you look at the apostles, they thought he would come in their lifetime. Paul said, I won't eat meat as long as the world stands. He didn't say as long as I lived. <laughs> and uh, you see co comments in Acts and other places where they were expecting the imminent 
return of Christ and the establishment of his absolute king. And I think God has always wanted us to live in that anticipation. In fact, I think that's what gave our Anabaptist forefathers their courage. They really did see the Turks threatening to invade. They saw the corruption of the church. They saw what the Antichrist, the Pope, and they thought they were living on the very edge of Christ's return and that they could be burned at the stake and suffer all of that. And tomorrow morning, they would be vindicated. And I think that's what gave them the courage. And I think that's what gives the Christians courage, the constant expectation that Christ will come and set everything right. Nevertheless, even though Jesus warned them that the absolute kingdom would not be established at that time, he said at the beginning of his ministry, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's there, it's there in your hands. It's at, uh, right near you. And Mark 9, 1 says, Verily I say unto you, there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Now, I know some people think that's the transfiguration which you have in the next chapter, but I don't think you can say that that's the kingdom come with power. I think he's talking, he was talking about Pentecost. And we pray constantly, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus pictured this mediatorial kingdom we would occupy and express the kingdom until he comes and establishes the absolute kingdom. God always wanted a nation. He always wanted a society that would demonstrate his perfect ideals to the world. In the Old Testament, it was a nation, and it was not perfect in, in some senses, to be, to be sure. But it was a, an excellent demonstration of what a nation looks like whose God is the Lord. And the Queen of Sheba came and testified, there is no other nation that has such equitable laws, that have such joyful people. Uh, yeah, so that's what God wanted. He didn't just want individuals. Individuals are an inspiration, but what he wants is for the world to see what God originally wanted society to be and to have people be able to look in to this, these ideals that the world has lost and want to join it. That's, that's what God has always wanted. Peter says it this way, and listen, this language that Peter uses, you can apply to Old Testament Israel. It's, it's that kind of language. Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. See, that's the mediatorial part. We are priests mediating God's graces to a lost and suffering world. Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's what God calls our communities a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. <laughs> I get so excited about that, that uh, vision for our communities. And see, I think one of the reasons we have a lot of our church problems is people are not thinking about the church. They're just thinking about their own personal salvation. If I do this, will I go to hell? If I do this, will I go to heaven? Uh, if you have a group of people thinking only in those terms, you're eventually going to have major problems in your community. But just try to think what would happen if every person had this ideal of making this church a beautiful example of what the kingdom of God should be. They would think twice before they would bring something in that would cause trouble, that would defile or cause divisions or schisms. They, they would think twice because they would have this goal of perfecting this body, just like it describes in Ephesians chapter 4. This is not Christ's absolute kingdom, but it is a mediatorial kingdom. We are priests mediating the ideals of Christ's kingdom to a lost world. And every blessing in the world to come has already been given to us in, in a measure. 
Ephesians says, he has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Everything that heaven has has been given to us. He is able to make all grace abound toward us, that we always having all sufficiency in all things may abound into every good work. The church is a society of the redeemed with a heavenly citizenship. We are a colony of heaven on earth. Somebody has said that Philippi was Rome away from Rome. It was. It was a Roman colony in the middle of Greek civilization. You walk toward Philippi. It was Greek culture. It was Greek dress. It was Greek law. Everything was Greek, the Greek language, until you stepped inside of Philippi, and then it was Latin. It was Roman law. It was Roman custom. Stark difference. And somebody has called Philippi Rome away from Rome. May I suggest that our communities were intended to be heaven away from heaven? made up of people whose selfishness has been resolved by their king with repentance and self-surrender. And when selfishness tries to raise its head, it's met by repentance and recommitment to the life that God has given us to enjoy. It won't be perfect, but it will be credible because when we fail, we will repent and realign ourselves with the kingdom vision. It will demonstrate what a society looks like that obeys all the teachings of Jesus by the power of his Holy Spirit. Jesus pictured a new kind of person, free of anger, free of lust, free of dishonesty, free of revenge, free of violence. When I describe the kingdom of God to people, they often think I'm a socialist. They say, I bet you voted for Bernie Sanders. And I say, well, he's talking about these themes. Everybody in his heart, the reason why this is such a powerful message is because in every heart, Everybody longs to be part of an equitable society where people are treated the way they're supposed to be treated, where resources are shared. There's no greed. There's no hoarding. There's no violence. They want to be part of that kind of society. In fact, they come from all over the world to see the Amish because they see how they work together as families and, and they see good things in their community. Now, we know that there are problems in our plain communities, but it's been interesting to me working on the billboard phone that the world does not see that. If, if, they, if I tell them I'm a Mennonite, they say, oh, the Mennonites, they are good people. They have good communities. They have beautiful families. I said it's not perfect, but it is credible. Our people have given a credible picture of the gospel to the world. We should keep working on our problems. I'm not in any way justifying the things that happen that shouldn't. But, but God has been able to give that witness to society in spite of our faults. Jesus pictured a new kind of person, and you have to admit, if you dealt with anger, lust, dishonesty, revenge, and violence, you would have an ideal society. I always look at Matthew 5 and I say, well, Jesus zeroed right in on the things that would make an equitable society. He pictured a new kind of society, free, uh, in which the tyranny of property has been broken. And there's vital faith without hypocrisy. Somebody has said, on that first Easter morning in the year AD 33, Christianity was little more than a fringe Jewish movement consisting of disciples, a few disciples huddled in an upper room. But by the year AD 350, there were almost 34 million Christians in the world. And how did it happen? Well, there are seven powerful kingdom ministries to the world that Jesus began. These are not perfect, but they are effective realities that Christians can demonstrate and bring people to experience. They are signs and foretastes of the great final absolute kingdom. Hebrews says, we have tasted of the powers of the world to come. 
That's why I say it's not it's not complete. It's not absolute. But we've tasted it. It's real. The taste is genuine. So what are the what are the seven ministries that I have observed that the church uh, brings to our world? A ministry of physical healing and alleviation of misery. That's what Christians historically have been known for. In fact, when Julian the Apostate, Julian uh, was a Roman emperor who was raised by Christian parents and rejected Christianity and came to the conclusion that Rome was going down, and it did. Rome fell under, when the Christians uh, had came to dominate the world, That Ro Rome fell after Christianity was established in the Roman uh, society. And some people like Julian the Apostate said, well, the reason why this is going down is because of Christianity. It's because we've neglected the pagan gods and they are wreaking vengeance on the Roman Empire and we need to go back to paganism. And so he made great efforts to get the Roman society to reject Christianity and go back to paganism. That's why he's called Julian the Apostate. He should have known better. He was a Christian. And so he failed. And he left us a reason why he failed. He, this was his observation. And I'm going to read, I'm going to quote from Julian the Apostate. It is their Christian benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and their pretended holiness of lives. He thought it was all a sham, but this is what he said, that they have done most to increase atheism, which he considered Christianity atheism because it was like the pagan gods. Let me go back and read it again. It is their Christian benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and their pretended holiness of their lives, that they have done most to increase atheism. These impious, impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack help from us. And Julian says that was the reason that paganism failed, because Christians had done such a tremendous job of this ministry of physical healing and alleviation of misery. In fact, there are stories, I think, at the uh, uh, plague of Carthage in Africa, that everybody left the city and the people who were sick were left there to die, starve, and uh, nobody was there to help them. And the Christians stayed at the risk of their own lives and uh, helped many of those people uh, in their sickness. And so that's what the world saw. The world saw that the, this was an army of people who were involved in physical healing and alleviation of the world's misery. So that's the first ministry. The second one, <clears throat> the kingdom overcomes demonic oppression and brings deliverance. I'm not going to comment on most of these. Number three, the kingdom overcomes rebellion and brings conversion, a peaceable and quiet spirit. Galassianite, as our people like to say. And Galassianite, as I understand it, is complete tranquility. The war inside is gone. A person's at peace. He doesn't have fighting going on, which then erupts into fighting against people. Number four, the kingdom overcomes condemnation and brings forgiveness, a relief to the conscience. Number five, the kingdom overcomes wrongdoing and brings righteousness, actual right living. Number six, the kingdom overcomes sadness and brings joy. And by the way, I think that's a tremendous part of our witness. Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. And then he says, these things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. A motto of faith builders used to say it this way. Joy is the infallible evidence of the grace of God within. 
and I said it on this talk, uh, one of my other talks, the root word for grace is caris. The root word for joy is care, C-H-A-R. So those two are related. And uh, the kingdom overcomes sadness and brings joy. I think one of the greatest witnesses is our joy. Number seven, the kingdom overcomes aimless futility and brings purposeful living. Some will be saved. I take great courage with the parable of the soils. Yes, there were three soils that didn't bring forth any fruit, but there's a promise in that parable that one soil does. There will be some seed that will fall on good ground. Some will be saved, but the war is not over and our ministry will bring us into the suffering and brokenness of our society and we will suffer along with them. Jesus said, in the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So now the two kingdom cautions, this is very short. We should not emphasize loving God to the exclusion of loving our neighbor. I hear that a little bit in some of our Mennonite circles, that we're not here to, to, to give humanitarian aid. We're here basically to, to emphasize the gospel of personal salvation. Uh, these two must be kept together. Uh, we're constantly creating these false dichotomies that you go off one side or you go off the other. These two are very difficult to keep together. There's a tendency to go off one side or the other, but God intended for them to be together. So the first one is, do not emphasize loving God to the exclusion of loving your neighbor. And the second one is, do not emphasize loving your neighbor to the exclusion of loving God. Those two must be kept together. And so my message to Cam was, People are looking at Cam, and they are criticized. I hear some criticism. Well, they're so involved in humanitarian aid. They're not establishing churches. They're not calling people to salvation. Well, I think Cam is. But that's a warning that I gave at the Cam meeting. And that is, let's be careful that we keep these two together. And there's just as much emphasis on the means to all of this, which is a resolution of the sin problem, which is selfishness. That has to be the solution. Christ bringing an end to the domination of self. Self is on the cross and Christ is on the throne. Do not create a false dichotomy like that Bible Institute that I attended in Europe. I remember sitting there horrified at what that man was saying. I was saying to myself, this is not the gospel that Jesus taught. We should take inspiration from John Wesley, who focused on changing the society by changing people. To our knowledge, John Wesley never got involved in politics. He never got up any marches or any pressure movements uh, like people do today. He simply went out there in the open air and preached the gospel, preached his heart out, and got people to begin to respond to Christ and, and experience changed lives. 18th century England, with, historians will tell you this, was rescued from a bloody revolution like France had just had by the teaching of John Wesley. They will say it was the preaching of the Wesleys that changed that society, but it was not emphasizing only imitating Christ. It was emphasizing a changed heart. Holiness was one of the passions of the Wesleys. In fact, John Wesley did not talk about a social gospel. He talked about social holiness. That was the term he used, social holiness, to explain his ministry. And if you ever visit England, you can forget everything else in England, but go to the Wesley Museum. Uh, when we went there, there weren't very many people there. I don't think most people were even aware of Wesley or care much what he did, the significant influence he had on his society. But I was so impressed at that museum. There was nobody that missed his attention, person to person, whether the person was poor, 
whether the person was headed for the gallows, whether the person was a slave. If somebody needed John Wesley's attention, they got it. He had a, he had a real heart for people who were suffering, but he also had a concern for people who were suffering be, be, because of sin. And so he, he, I think he had a pretty balanced message. His life was one of amazing self-sacrifice. He published, uh, I think, 200 books in his lifetime. Many of them were small. But somebody said that his income in our money would have been about $140,000 a year. The salary he took in our money was about $14,000 a year. And if you read his journal, he probably gave some a, a significant amount of that small salary away. But somebody has said when John Wesley died, he left a battered hat, a shabby coat, a tattered Bible, and a society of converted people committed to social holiness of this, instead of the social gospel. And so I, I just want to encourage us, let's keep these two kingdoms clear. And let's, let's focus on demonstrating what a society of redeemed people looks like. But let's not veer off into leaving out the message that makes that possible, which is dealing with real sin and selfishness by the cross of Christ. Shall we pray? And then we can have some discussion. Father, I thank you this morning that we can experience that vibrant, powerful, supernatural motivation and change working in our very hearts. And oh God, help us never just to want to see the effects of that by imitation in our society, but help us to always keep it in mind. There will be no change until people are changed from within. So just help us, Lord, to keep this message together. Help us not to veer off one side or the other, because it is a powerful message when the two are combined. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brother John. I found that uh, extremely helpful and clarifying. It's uh, um, There is a tension, I guess, that we face, especially coming here to Calgary. You see a lot of needs. We were down um, at the drop-in center. And it's really cold up here. So we're thinking about the 2,000 plus homeless people in this city. And it's a tension that you walk because it, your, your compassion wants you to pour a lot of time and energy into meeting their physical needs. But that's not the point, is it? I mean, we are supposed to have compassion on our fellow man. But... Say you did get them set up in a nice house and it was nice and warm and they got an income and all of those things, you wouldn't have changed that much for them really as far as their eternal souls goes. But anyway, we'll open it up for questions or comments or um, anything you might have to say after hearing that. Um, the question I had in listening to this and it came to me, um, comes to me numerous times in discussing, you know, people that with people that I know that are pushing to bring about change through political means or through um, activism, I guess, is where do we look for to bring about real change? That's the question that it seems to boil down to in my mind is where does real change come from? Well, it, it comes from within. Mm -hmm. And those efforts to change society ultimately fail. Uh, Lyndon Johnson set out to create the Great Society. He addressed education, he addressed poverty, and I forget there was a third one that he addressed. And, and he instituted all these programs, uh, politically 
enforce programs, but we still have oh, racism was another one. Racism is still here. Poverty is still here. Uh, uh, education systems are failing. Uh, the, the change was just superficial. And there were some good changes made. I'm not saying that these people never do any good, but society just keeps going down. It does not, society does not move upward like they, they say. It, it keeps going down, despite mm -hmm. the fact that there are some, some good things happening as a result of their efforts. Right. Yeah. I think it was Watchman Nee that said you could have a perfectly moral man. And if he hasn't dealt with the, the Adamic nature, if he hasn't dealt with the sin issue, um, he's just as lost as, you know, as anyone. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a good thing to keep in mind is um, we're not here just to improve their lives for the sake of improving their lives. They, they, they have to come to the cross I feel like it's a it's we sometimes seek what's in the kingdom for the people around us without bringing them through the door to the kingdom, which That's is death the itself. Yeah, yeah, and 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 Christians end up giving a horrible testimony. Mm -hmm. I mean, in our in our world, the conservative Christian right is looked at as a very harsh, uh, cruel unfeeling, unsympathetic group of people who want to just constantly go to war and uh, kill everybody in the world that's bad and and uh, uh, put down homosexuals with, with abusive language. Uh, that's how they see Christians, because the worst compromise that was ever made in the history of the church was the compromise on non-resistance. And I try to remind people that for two centuries, almost three, the Christians uh, were totally opposed to coercion. Uh, they did not permit people in the church who were involved in any kind of violence or killing. And then that was compromised, just mm -hmm. like everything in Jesus' gospel has been compromised. Uh, I think it was, uh, was it E. Stanley Jones that said, it isn't that the gospel has been tried and found wanting. It has been seen as impossible and not even tried. <laughs> and so, so marriage goes by the board because it's difficult uh, to live a Christian life in a difficult marriage. So the church made a way out. Uh, it's difficult to tell the truth when it gets you in hot water. So then we swear oaths, uh, we'll tell the truth now, but otherwise I might have a little leeway. Uh, it's difficult not to put any hurt back on someone who has hurt you. It's mm -hmm. difficult to live without any financial resources piled up uh, to give you a nicely feathered nest. Those things are all totally against human nature, and Christians now justify all of that. Uh, but the worst compromise was the compromise on resistance. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and it has brought a huge black mark on the church. I mean, because they opened that Pandora's box, we had the Crusades where Christians march off to kill Muslims. We had the Inquisition where people were torturing and burning other Christians at the stake. We have the conquest of the Native Americans in the name of Christ. We have the enslavement of blacks preached from the pulpits. We have the war to end that slavery where tens of thousands of Christians killed each other on both sides. We have the conquest of Latin America under the sign of the cross. We have all the Western wars of Western Europe for centuries where Catholics and Protestants and even Protestants fought it out with each other. These are horrible things that have happened in the church because of the confusion of these two kingdoms. One of the things we need to have clear is Christians are always gentle and kind. They are not abusive. They are not coercive. They win by love. And uh, I say to people, if you have to say something to people that's going to hurt, and we will say things that hurt, we have to tell that couple that's living together, they, if they want to follow Jesus, they're going to have to separate. That's a hard that's a hard word to say. 
but let's make sure that we say it kindly. Mm-hmm. If we have to say something hard, let's make sure it's not the way we said it that makes it hurt. Mm-hmm. But it's just the words themselves, the truth itself that 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 causes whatever pain is is experienced. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christians are gentle. Be gentle with all men. That's that's our that that should be our mantra as Christians. Amen. Does anyone on here have uh, something to ask Brother John or a comment? Brother, Brother John, thank you for that message. Um, yeah, I really appreciated uh, everything you shared this morning. Um, so you had a list of uh, things about the kingdom towards the end there. And you talked about we are not uh, we are not in the absolute kingdom yet, but we're in a mediatorial kingdom. So we look forward to that final uh, consummation of the kingdom when the king comes back and gathers his own and renews creation and and that glorious end where we'll live in eternity in the new creation. Um, We're not there yet. Um, You had but but we are in a in we could say an intermediate state and i think you said it a mediatorial kingdom where heaven's laws uh are here and we are to live as embassies of that final kingdom um you had a list of things we have a foretaste of that final kingdom the kingdom brings joy and then the kingdom brings uh overcomes aimless futility and brings purpose and so on could that list be uh be posted or published on the final video uh, where it's uh, where it's recorded on YouTube. Yeah, we we could probably do we could probably put that up. Yeah, sir. Would you be able to name some names? Who were the great lights of the social gospel movement? Would you consider uh, William Booth one of those? Uh no. William Booth was was preaching against sin. And uh, he was preaching the cross. But that is an interesting movement. When you think Salvation Army, you think of humanitarian help. Uh, it was a long time before I was aware that the social, uh, that Salvation Army actually had a church. You could actually go to a Salvation Army church. Uh, so even though I think William Booth tried to keep those two together, and I'm not going to criticize him for what happened, uh, the Salvation Army has sort of tended to veer off with a little more emphasis on the humanitarian than on the uh, uh, solution to the sin problem. What do you think on that, Dan? Give us your own opinion. Uh, I, I'm ignorant. I don't know. I'm trying to find my way through this. What, what are? Could you name some of the other great lights of the uh, social gospel movement? William <laughs> Russell Bowie wrote "Oh Holy City, Scene of John." Frank Mason North. Washington Gladden. Thank you. That helps. <laughs> John, how would you mentor young people who are coming into service through the social gospel of today's um, church? There's a lot of young people that are arming themselves and getting ready to go into service, but they're going with a heart that wants to convert people with kindness. So what is your, how do you, how do you mentor them into the next stage of the kingdom? 
kingdom message? Well, I, I learned this from East, uh, not East Stanley Jones, from uh, G. Campbell Morgan. He said the way we attract, the, the way we get our message across is first of all demonstrating supernatural phenomena. When we are kind to our enemies, when we do things that make no sense to people, like uh, 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 nickel mine shooting, uh, the world then sits up and they're ready to hear what we have to say. So I think we should take the gospel with our kind humanitarian concerns, but we should help people see that the reason why they're experiencing this kindness is because of what God has done in our hearts. And they can, they can enjoy the kindness, but they will never truly experience it until they let Jesus deal with the problem in their own hearts. So they can be people of genuine uh, humanitarian concerns. So I think the same question, I think we constantly have to trumpet the message that man is intensely selfish. And that's yeah. another way of saying he's intensely sinful. And until that problem is dealt with, he will not make any progress living life the way it should be lived. Or should not, let's say it this way, he won't make much genuine progress in living life the way it should be lived. Well, what I'm referring to is if you take a group of young church members that come to a uh, specific place, to learn about urban ministry, they have two days. <laughs> and you focus on the social end, but how do you define or how do you really reinforce? Because unless you go up and hit somebody, and I know we're non-resistant, we're not able to practice loving our enemy because we created our enemy. So what do you do in a situation where you have 48 hours to teach somebody? What, what are the important things? And I'll talk to you later about this. I'll back out because. <laughs> no, it's an important question. I think we go right to the Sermon on the Mount. The dynamic for all of the good things you read in chapter five, dealing with anger, dealing with lust, dealing with greed, dealing with dishonesty. The secret to that is in chapter six. And that's, that's the spiritual uh, dynamic behind the kingdom morality in chapter five. And the interesting thing to me is the teaching against uh, accumulating wealth is not in chapter five. It's not listed with the kingdom morality. It's listed with the kingdom piety in chapter six. <laughs> and, and I could preach a whole sermon on this, but Jesus starts out in chapter six, reinforcing the three pillars of Judaism, which was almsgiving, which that's translated in the Septuagint, sometimes almsgiving and sometimes righteousness. Tzedakah is the word, uh, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but uh, they say that that word is variously translated righteousness or almsgiving. In the Jewish mind, that was the real, that was the real key to your spirituality, what you did with your stuff and how you were responding to the people around you. So Jesus reinforced almsgiving, prayer, and fasting, and then he elaborated on almsgiving in the longest discussion we have in the Sermon on the Mount, which has to do with, with our resources. Uh, so I, we take them right to chapter six. Those have to be established in every heart, a, a genuine piety, a, a, a self-finally re resolved. Does that answer your question, Patrick? No, it just creates more, but we'll talk later. <laughs> you need to put him on for, for the next talk uh, yeah. so you know. <laughs> I think I'll, I'll just send you a Zoom link we'll have a couple hour discussion thank you 
it's good. Uh, my message is we must never forget that sin and selfishness is the problem. I think there's a tendency sometimes, well, not sometimes, knowing our own weakness is that when you become hyper-focused on meeting people's needs, there's a lot of attention given to you because you're you're making a difference in in someone's life in a very physical you know visible way and it takes humility and grace to keep pointing to christ the only means of providing this service is because of christ and i know there's ungodly people who are providing services as well but and if we keep pointing to christ then that's the answer for the sin and that's where the real change um, can come about. Um, but to make sure that we're out of the picture in the in Christ address that as well, you see the, the, I think it was the Pharisees, you know, they blow a trumpet before their prayer, or they make sure that people know how much they're giving and, and things like that, remove us out of that picture, um, and make sure that it's only Christ that is seen in the, um, social endeavors that we have to meet the needs of the people around us. Yeah. Uh, going back to chapter six of Matthew, you have the Lord's prayer there. And if you analyze that prayer, it's all there. Everything mm -hmm. is in that prayer of this inner dynamic that we're talking about. Uh, speaking of our witness, somebody said that after uh, Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, that the people in New Orleans observed that the people who came to help them were the Christians. Mm -hmm. It was not the atheists. It was the Christians. Uh so I thought that was an interesting observation. It's amazing. Is there anyone else that would like to make a comment before we close? I really appreciate it. John, thank you for your message. I really I really appreciate your message, John, this morning. Um, one thing I appreciate is how you said about the gospel is not just imitating Christ. It's more about um, living in Christ with a changed heart. And maybe you have more to say about that, but I really appreciated it. Do you have anything more to add to that? Um, no. No. Um, but if you read in his steps, it was about imitating Christ and, and that WWJD, that's, you know, that was a big uh, motto for a long time, but that's what it was. It was just imitating Christ and it has no permanent lasting effect in the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was a couple of uh, phrases that I wrote down. Um, I love the heaven away from heaven. It puts a lot of our interactions with each other into perspective and with the world around us. Um, how do we show our brethren what fellowship in heaven looks like? Well, there's a lot of forgiveness and peace. And I know it's going to be different in heaven because our brothers will be perfect and as will we. But um, it does help with the perspective on on how we live out our lives here. And also, um, the church is not a perfect 
representation of the kingdom, but it's a credible one. And I believe that is because of the uh, seal of the Holy Spirit. And um, I think that is evident, should be very clear um, where the power and where the glory is from in the church. That credibility, I would say, grows out of our readiness to repent mm-hmm. when we fail. There mm-hmm. should be a real attitude of repentance. Somebody said, the litmus test for any church is this. Would Jesus actually feel at home in your church? Sobering question. Thank you, Brother John, for sharing with us again. Uh, we really appreciate it when you come on here and share your inspiration and uh, are used in this way by God to help clear up some of these things that can be, we do so well at um, muddying issues that are quite clear in the scripture. Um, and you talked about how we fall into one ditch or the other. I thought about how it's sometimes it seems like we're trying to balance a, a magnets with opposite mm-hmm. poles and they want to slip either way. Mm-hmm. And we need that hand. I believe it's the hand of God to keep right. us centered so that we're not slipping to the one side or to the left, that we go to the world loving our father with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourselves and balancing those two. um, It's, and it is by the grace of God that we do that. Can I ask? Yeah. Can I ask one more thing? Go ahead. John. So what you're proposing is a non-commerce based ministry, meaning, and I've talked to you about this before. Most churches that I know, they have to get one out for every two, or they need to get two out for every one they put in. So that magnet that Sam's talking about is if you put in and put in and put in and expect none to come out, is that the defining? I'm hoping that I'm getting this across correctly. If we're, we're, if we're, worried about receiving for what we did, then we're really never going to meet what Christ called us to do. Yeah, you're, you're saying the focus is often on uh, how many people got saved. Uh, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. right. I, I think that should take care of itself if we focus on our responsibility. And, and I'll be very honest with you. I've watched various ministries and their efforts in our, our society. And the uh, fruit is pretty meager uh, for people who are really trying to preach the gospel. I don't want to discourage us, but I do believe we're living in the days of Noah. And Noah basically didn't have much to show for all his preaching, uh, but he left a tremendous testimony. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, that's, I think we need to quit beating ourselves up uh, that we're not getting more responsibly than we are. I don't think that should discourage us. I don't think we should say, oh, well, we're living in a, 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 a an end time society. We might as well just uh, not bother. No, I think we should redouble our efforts to get the message out. I would like to see us spread our witness better all across this country. And then whether anybody responds or not is is really up to the Lord. Let's try to perfect our methods as much as we can and be as, as uh, out there as we possibly can. But I think it's time for us to quit saying, well, I think if we compromise a little bit over here, maybe we'll have better success. Or if we do this, if we have this technique or this gimmick, uh, I think we need to quit that and quit making apologies for the pure gospel of Jesus expressed with both of these in balance. 
and go out there and be our witness to the world. But I do think we're living in a very, very hardened society. Uh, they can go half a block down the street and they can hear a message about the tremendous rewards of Christianity without any of the disciplines that Jesus taught. And uh, that is a tremendous hindrance to the gospel. And that's what we're up against. Mm -hmm. Noah did save his own family. That's so right. Mission is number one, his family. Mm -hmm. I know some people don't like to hear that, <laughs> but well, that, that is true. The question that comes to my mind is, how do you define success? Is it by the numbers or the bellies filled or, you know, the people in the queues? Or is it the people who have been inspired to live an obedient love faith relationship with Jesus Amen. Christ and Christ promised or stated, I should say, that few there would be that find it. There was and, a woman. I'm sorry. Go ahead, <clears throat> go ahead Dan. Uh, there's a woman by the name of Jackie Pullinger whose testimony I find uh, quite arresting. And she said, if I can say this correctly, um, God, uh, if I could spend my whole life and just save one of these people, uh, it would be, it would be worth it. And I don't even have to know which one. Yes. Now for a little deep background, she was, she was deployed to the, uh, walled city, which was a cube of, of compacted squalor in uh, uh <clears throat> hong kong mm. but she said if i did if i devote my whole life and and i convert one uh that's just fine and mm. i don't know who it was mm -hmm. i found her i i got to her by way of um leonard ravenhill mm. and uh, that's how i got boosted into that and so I find that her testimony is quite uh, inspiring and challenging. Thank you, Brother Dan. That's good. Was it, uh, I think it was John Whitfield that said, let me die and let my name die with me. It's this um, removal of my own need to be something or to have done something and a, a pure focus on are we are people getting to know Jesus Christ? Amen. I, I'm defining my exit plan that if I can, excuse me, I'll use two terms: influence or irritate. If I can influence or irritate somebody to do something to change their their life, then I feel like I'm successful if I leave with nothing and I give everything away. That's good. You. You're good at doing both. Irritating. <laughs> Amen. All right. I think uh, we'll wrap this up. I really appreciate the discussion. Uh, I've been inspired, and I hope that all of you have been as well. Um, we do need the help of God and our brethren to do this in a better way, in a credible way. Yes. So let's press toward that end. Um, maybe we'll have a prayer to close us and I'll make some announcements after the prayer. Um, 
Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for this message that we heard this morning, a reminder to seek first the kingdom and to love our fellow men. Father, we have so much to learn in this, and there's so much bad teaching around what it means to be a Christian and a follower of Jesus Christ. Yes. And not only are we working at being a light to a lost and dying world, but we're also um, trying to teach others who have received bad doctrine what it means to truly follow Christ. Help us to do it with humility and in no way seeking our own um, exaltation or seeking to be noticed. Father, help us to remove ourselves out of the picture so that people can only see Christ in the things that we do. Thank you for each brother that joined us this morning. I hope their hearts have been moved by this message and that they wouldn't be hearers only, but doers as well. Thank you for Brother John uh, and his willingness to share this and to be used in this way to preach the word of God. Go with each one of us. We want to humbly exalt you in our lives today and to reach out and show the love of Christ in whatever way you call us to. And if it is feeding and dressing and visiting and uh, all of those things that humans need, that it would be done in the name of Jesus Christ Amen. and to his name um, would the glory be. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all for joining us this morning. Um, we actually have another meeting this afternoon at 3 o'clock Eastern Time. Brother Paul Garber is going to be joining us to share on who is Israel. And again, just a reminder, this is a series called Thy Kingdom Come. And there's a four-part series. This was part one. Uh, the next three parts will be so the first one is this afternoon, who is Israel? And then part three is on January 27th in the morning at six o'clock Eastern. And that's kingdom promises to Israel. And there's another one on three o'clock in the afternoon on January 27th, kingdom promises to Israel fulfilled. And the thrust of the last few parts of this series are to clear up any ambiguity there might be around the kingdom of God in relation to Israel. So join us again this afternoon at three o'clock um, at the same Zoom link, and that's three o'clock Eastern time. And Brother Paul Garber will share on who is Israel. Thank you again for joining us. I hope you have been inspired to pray that the kingdom would come and God's will would be done in your community. Um, go with God. Blessings on your day. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend.